The Paso County DEC is providing this podcast as a public service in order to let you know more about the issues and ideas which Democrats have identified as being very important for voters and also to provide a forum for Democratic candidates for office. Our podcasts are open to anyone interested in how Pasco Democrats are dealing with the important issues of the day. You can check out our PascoDems.com website and also on Facebook, Pasco Dems, and the views expressed by the guest and host on our podcast are their own. Not the views of the Pasco County Democratic Executive Committee. Our guest today is Dr. Pamela Bell-Smith, an accomplished retired public school educator who served as a curriculum coordinator, school improvement consultant, Title I supervisor, high school assistant principal, and a classroom teacher. For more than 20 years, she provided specialized and comprehensive instructional support in K-12 schools in urban and rural school districts. She serves as an adjunct professor in the College of Education at Cambridge College, and she believes that uh, reading is essential to success in life and that educators must be equipped with the requisite knowledge and skills to ensure success to all students. Through her collaborative leadership skills, she was able to turn around low-performing schools, resulting in several schools being recognized as distinguished Title I schools. Additionally, as a 12th grade administrator, student graduation rates increased for the five consecutive years that she was a supervisor uh, for the mathematics department, and her school outperformed the district's proficiency level on the state mathematics assessment. She has served as a key campaign volunteer for uh, President Barack Obama's campaign in 2008 and 2012. She earned her doctorate degree in education from South Carolina State University. She has a specialist degree in education administration and supervision from Lincoln Memorial University, a master's degree in public management from the University of the Philippines, and a bachelor's degree in political science from American University. So we are starting our talk today with Pam. She's got a tremendous, as you heard, a tremendous range of educational experience. And uh, uh, as a former teacher myself, I'm very interested in hearing what her answers are to some of the issues that we've got uh, going on here in Florida. Um, and I would like to ask Pam, first of all, in terms of, um, of what, what at this point, given you've heard what DeSantis is trying to do and what he is doing, what do you think are the most important things right now that we as citizens should be concerned about? I think as citizens, uh, we should be concerned about educators having the opportunity to have a voice in the education process, as well as the fact that um, we should not be involved in um, partisan politics when it comes to educating our students. All of our students have a right to learn. So those are the major things that I'm really concerned about. That is voice and the fact that uh, partisan politics has no place in the field of education. And, of course, we know what DeSantis did last year and what was it, uh, 20 out of 29 school districts. He managed to get the people he wanted in on school boards. And uh, that just seems to be so terribly wrong. Um, I'm going to start off with this. Um, I'm going to ask you a question now, and this is not a gotcha, but you've been here in Florida now for a couple of years. If I say the word Rosewood Massacre, what does that mean to you? Um, I've heard briefly about 
that and I'm trying to uh, bring it up in, in my mind. Um, That's okay. Don't worry about that because it wasn't meant as a test, but it is something that is important to me. And let me explain why. Uh, Ebony Pickett, who lives in uh, near Dade City in Lacoochee, I interviewed her in a podcast about a month ago. And I had not known very much about Rosewood, and I, and I uh, talked with her about it. She gave me a lot of information. She is the president of the uh, descendants of the Rosewood Massacre that took place uh, January 1st, 1923, to about January 7th. Now, there have been a few books that have been written about that, uh, Pam, uh, one mm-hmm. of which was uh, written by a man who uh, heard about this in 1982, and he lived in Florida all his life. He was a reporter for the, at that time, St. Pete Times, and uh, he started investigating, and lo and behold, he, he was able to find a number of people who were descendants and survivors of the massacre, and uh, he wrote a book, and there's another, many other people have now written books uh, about Rosewood itself. Very briefly, it had to do with uh, a white woman on January 1st, when running out of her house at 7 in the morning claiming she had been assaulted by a black man. Well, within 24 hours, her husband and others had tried to track down who this black man was. They ended up killing one person, as it turned out to be totally innocent. And uh, by the time everything was done, in seven days or so, the Ku Klux Klan had come in, and uh, a total of five blacks and two whites had been killed, and the entire town of Rosewood was set afire. Everything was burned, except for one house. And that house exists today, and that was owned by a man by the name of Wright, who was a friend to blacks as well as to white. He was white, but he was a friend to, to both both parties, so to speak. Uh, that house has been, has been has, is saved, and apparently uh, a group of, uh, of uh, wealthy black citizens have banded together, and they're going to buy the house and they're going to get it moved to a better place. If you go to Rosewood today, there's nothing more than a sign, a, a memorial sign that tells you basically what happened and so forth. Now, the reason I bring this up is this. Um, as you probably know, uh, um, DeSantis shot down the Black Studies course that was suggested that's right. by Wright. And that's why I brought this up, because it would seem that what a very bad thing happens to Florida students if they never hear about something like the Rosewood Massacre. What do you think? I, I think that our students need to uh, learn about historical facts. Mm-hmm. And no matter what, right? Whether it's... No matter, no, no matter what. If it makes them feel uncomfortable, uh, sometimes you just have to face the reality of factual history and so the real intent of factual history is not to make any race uncomfortable. It's actually to share the facts of what actually happened in history. Mm-hmm. And this whole idea that DeSantis has of getting rid of the woke movement, it just at some point I'm hoping that rational minds are going to prevail and the idea of woke movement will take on its real meaning. And, of course, I think you also know, right, that woke actually got started as a black expression back, what, around 1910, somewhere in there? No, I was not familiar with that. Yeah, I think that's, I have read about that, that it was a way of, for many blacks to simply say, okay, you've got to be aware of what's happened here, but, you know, our day will come. But for the moment, we just have to be aware and not forget things. Anyway, that was part of the idea behind woke. But I'm, I, I 
thoroughly agree with you that no matter what we learn, white, black, whatever, if you learn uncomfortable things about what your, quote, race, unquote, has done, you have to face up to it. Um, you know, certainly there are things that I grew up in in northern New York State. There are things that I, I've heard about Jews when I was growing up, and it wasn't until I went away to college that I suddenly found that the Jews were not bad people. You know, you grow up with those things, uh, you know, in your families and a general culture and so forth. They can be rather dangerous. So what do we really mean yes. in terms of what should we be doing in trying to educate students today? What do you think? I, I think we should be teaching reading writing, math, and arithmetic, and important historical facts. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the reading, I, I share your interest. I taught reading for a couple of years on a junior high level. And uh, as I mentioned to you in a note, that first year of teaching, I taught special ed. And, of course, their reading levels was, was quite low and so forth. But uh, it was quite, quite good to get an experience of trying to teach something which I had been doing all my life. And we run across kids who were having trouble just, you know, understanding what that word meant or actually how it was pronounced and so forth. But um, um, is there anything that you think is special about trying to teach reading? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, in, in the teaching of reading. So it's good to have both types of uh, texts when you're um, teaching of reading. So you want to do the personal narrative along with uh, the expository text. Mm -hmm. And with the expository text, what happens is that you can bring in that um, historical factual information. So not only are the students getting a personal narrative about what's going on, what has happened, uh, in a story, but you can also bring the factual piece into that. Now, in order to do that, however, teachers have to be trained uh, in order to um, teach kids how to how to read. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my position on that is that most of the colleges of education um, have not done a good job with regard to really. Um, um, teaching teachers how to teach kids how to read. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some basic foundations there that teachers need to know and coming out with um, nine um, hours of coursework and the teaching of reading just does not suffice mm -hmm. to meeting the reading needs of our kids today. And one of the things we've read about recently is that now, finally, phonics has come back into good favor. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and that, it's that critical. Seems, yeah. <laughs> That's what I grew up with. I suspect you grew up with it as well. And uh, uh, anemic awareness is critical. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Now, one other thing I want to mention here is that when we start talking about uh, uh, the various things that are available to Florida families, they can choose from traditional public schools, public mm -hmm. charter schools, public magnet schools, private schools, online academies, and homeschooling. Now, of those, I'll repeat them again in a moment uh, just so you can hang on to ones that you want to talk about, but I'm wondering if there's anything, one of those that you might feel is best all around, or do we? is it a matter of what each student might uh, fit into something better in one than another? So they're talking about these types, traditional public schools, 
public charter schools, public magnet schools, private schools, online academies, and homeschooling. Do you have any thoughts about any one of those? Well, I, let me just only speak from my personal reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that um, I was taught in a traditional uh, public school. Right. And I think I came out uh, pretty well educated mm-hmm. um, in that regard. So I really, you know, don't have a preference. But my, what my concern is that the dollars that are going towards uh, the charter, charter schools yeah. is taken away from traditional public schools. Mm-hmm. That's a big concern for me. Yes, yes. And it, it kind of, it's like one of those things where if you give them more money over here, then yes, public schools are not going to be able to compete. They're going to get older and they're going to need repairs and the repairs aren't there. And it's like like a death sentence uh, for them when you take away the money. And uh, it, it does not seem to be the right thing. How about parental rights and education? How much should a parent be able to do in terms of the education of their child? Well, you know, parental rights and education have been around for a long time. I think I um, recall from your uh, communication that you were a special ed teacher. So, you know, we know with regard to that, that the parents' rights to know when it comes to educating kids, that the parents do have a right to be involved in the education of their students. I don't think that, you know, we should take anything away from that. But when we start leaning too much towards, you know, the right or the left, that's where in the problem lies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just going to take it from this whole issue regarding the books, uh, right. the book bans. Mm-hmm. And um, so what you're getting is individual interpretations on books that parents may or may not have even read. But because they're hearing the rhetoric right now um, that this is part of a, of a woke agenda, or mm-hmm. this is a part of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, right. um, then that raises a huge concern for me. Um, you get a lot of emotions um, involved when you start letting parents really to openly decide with regard to what the curriculum should be now i'm not saying that uh that parents could not be involved on committees uh when they um do adoptions of textbooks or reviewing them but when you start just leaning way too far uh to the right i have some real concerns for that Mm just one thing, and that my first two years, yes, I did teach special ed, but then I later uh, got into high school teaching, and I was able to teach courses like mass media, British literature, an introduction of philosophy course, and mystery fiction. And those happened to be my hobbies, and I was very lucky to teach them for about 25 years. And it really meant, you know, I looked back in those days as a special ed teacher, and looking at kids, I had a, a kid, uh, Pam, uh, the IQ, she had been judged to have an IQ of 89. Now, if she had been a 90, she could be in a regular right. class. That's well, right. That's right. <laughs> what happened is I went to the principal and I said, Dorothy, I don't think she belongs in a special ed class. I mean, she's, so she's got an 89 IQ. If she had one more, she'd be in a regular class. Well, he said, okay, let's try her next year. 
Well, she went into a regular seventh grade class, did fine. Five years later, graduated from high school with a B average, and her life was changed simply because we were able to identify her as being somebody capable of being in high school and not in a special ed class. And yet Absolutely. I had a, a mother and father who had uh, twins. One, one uh, suffered uh, a birth defect, being, being born later uh, after the first baby, and she suffered irreversible brain damage, but the mother and father did not want to, uh, to separate them. So both of them were in a special ed class. That is something that I think today would not happen. But this was many years ago, and I don't think the people were not sophisticated enough to really understand the problems that individual students can absolutely. have and so forth. And, uh, absolutely. It, in your experience now, you, you, you turned a lot of schools around, Pam, over the years. But in your experience, what is it that made it possible to turn schools around? I think the biggest thing uh, for us uh, that we found was having um, highly qualified and highly, highly effective teachers in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so what does that look like? That looks like teachers who are constantly engaged in uh, professional, ongoing professional development and increasing um, their content knowledge as well as their pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you talked about uh, your experience with special education. When I looked at strategies that special education teachers were using, they always have been effective uh, for students. So why not use those strategies across the board mm-hmm. in a school system for all students? Because uh-huh. we learned that uh, those strategies work. But the real, the real push and the thrust uh, for turning around schools was having those highly qualified, highly effective, and the best teachers in front of our students. So when I'm talking about the best students in front of our teacher, you asked a question earlier about preference or choice of charter schools and all these other schools. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, my position on that is that you should have the best and the brightest in your lowest performing schools. Okay. But if you don't have the proper funding to attract those teachers, you're not going to get them. Right. Right. And we know that enough lot of teachers are leaving the profession these days. I saw a, a figure this morning um, that had to do with college teachers in Florida. There's a tremendous rush of for, uh, teachers leaving Florida schools to go teach somewhere else. That's and right. there And there's far fewer applying to come into Florida to teach. Why? Because of the, the census policies towards, towards what's happening in colleges and so forth. And I don't know, we have to turn something around. And so I think it's kind of a, you know, it's been very fast for us today, and I'll probably get back to you again with another podcast on things we don't have a chance to talk about today. But I would like to ask you this. What do you think would be the best way for individuals really interested, not only simply as parents, but others interested in in education, what should we be doing to try to turn things around? I, you know, I, I've, I've thought about that uh, over the past two years uh, since I've been here in Florida. And I have to be honest, I'm kind of disappointing in uh, the lack of involvement. And so how do you how do we truly engage parents into the educational process of their students? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we engage uh, the community? And, and and I look at some of your uh, more progressive states and some of the things that 
they try and do and you know things such as hosting frequent town hall meetings uh-huh. um, and those town halls could be in the format of a virtual meeting or it can be in the format of a, a face-to-face uh, meeting uh-huh. um, our churches have always uh, been a good draw to really to um, inform and engage parents uh-huh. um, I I just haven't seen enough of that here um, you know, how do we, you know, engage them? Um, I know we have attempted to do some things as far as, uh, rallying, uh, rallying the troops, but I don't see a lot of engagement. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the problem is, why people have become so complacent. Hmm. Yeah. Um, it just it's it's just mind-boggling for me uh, when I look at other progressive states and what they're mm-hmm. doing um, yeah. to really to reach the people and go out into the communities mm-hmm. and and reach. Sometimes you have to go where the people are yeah. and and try and reach them. And I think we need to be doing more of that uh, to engage the parents as well as uh, the community. Oftentimes, parents are not comfortable coming uh, into the schoolhouse. Right. right. So you may have to go out in front of, um, uh, of, a, of a grocery store where they at, you know, mm-hmm. to pass out literature and things like that to get them engaged. Um, you know, family nights to get them engaged, things like that. I think we need to be doing more of that. Yeah, because, you know, I... And again, we taught in Massachusetts for a number of years, and that, yes, it was a fairly progressive state. I mean, our our school had seventy percent of its kids going on to college, so it was you know. On the other hand, we didn't do the job we should have done with the kids who weren't going to go on to college. That was one of our real negative things. And it, uh, when we left uh, teaching, uh, they were just beginning to start saying, "Okay, look at those kids who want to simply go into a skills area. What can we do for them?" And then we're finally turning the corner. But we left Massachusetts because uh, up there it was called MCAT. Down here was FCAT. But it was the state coming in and saying, thou shalt teach this in this way. And mm-hmm. neither Nola or myself had ever taught like that. You know, we were, in the, we, were, we were able to teach in our classes as creatively as we could. I, in my philosophy class, I remember one day when I had the assistant supervisor of schools visiting my class, and uh, the class and I, we were all talking about whether or not God existed. If I did that in Florida today, I'd be out of my ear before the day was over. Absolutely. And you know, that, yeah, it absolutely. was. I'd like to think that you know, we we did a good thing back then. We, uh, you know, in that one particular class, by the way, I had uh, two kids from India, both of which were Hindu. I had some kids in there who were Catholic, some Protestant. I had about three or four kids who thought they were atheists. That was a great way to teach. Because they bounded, bounced ideas. And what you're saying is right. parents, if they get out there and start talking to uh, schools and so forth, bounce their ideas off. You don't have to be a Ph.D. to go to a person and say, gee, I wonder why you don't do it this way or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, I knew it was going to go fast and because education is a pretty important thing. I, Pam, I'm going to get back to you if I can. We'll pick out one or two topics and really get into the nitty-gritty of it. But for now... I want to thank you very much for being here, and, and thanks for your answers. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.